All right, everybody. Hello. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for May 3rd, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, I think that we're going to discuss a couple of topics, maybe some ideas, even some theories. Who's to say? And when we're evaluating these different concepts and topics, we're going to evaluate information coming from all sources, sort of like a multi-sensory source blitz, if you will. And we're not going to try to discount things just because they disagree with us. No, no, no. We're going to assume good faith, try to keep ourselves in good faith, doing our best to make sure that our conversation is adequately informed. Yeah, you know, we realize we aren't the only perspective that matters. We are only human. We don't know everything about every subject. You know, we only, we're only adequately, you know, it's enough to have the conversation, not enough to be the expert on it. Um, you know, we're not on the ivory tower. We ain't looking down. We know we ain't the shit. We're just our own shit. So anyway, hey, Evan. Yeah, Joe. What do you want to talk about today? I want to talk about social media. Ooh, that's a big scope. No, it's it's actually quite narrow. Okay. I'll, I think that it's, was the whole point, right? You wanted to make the point that your, your conversation is narrow and uh, we accept that. And it's time for me to talk about my subject. Is it coincidentally also social media? Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I I just kind of want to have some of my musings about social media that I've come to in this past week. It's not going to be as, yeah, it's not going to be as structured as, as an Evan segment normally is, but we're going to, we're going to spitball and gesticulate and we're going to have some good times. So I recently had social media removed from my phone. I never had like Facebook or Twitter apps, but I was signed into them in Safari and I would check them pretty regularly. But I decided that it wasn't really healthy for me and I wanted to cut back on it. So they're off my phone. If I want to check social media, I have to go to my actual computer and log in on a browser. And this has coincided with me finally getting a full-time job that keeps me occupied and busy during the day thank you yes it's been a long time coming um but i have as a consequence seen my social media use plummet this past week very very far down and it's kind of been weird because it feels like getting over an addiction Twitter especially, I'm going to make this mostly about Twitter because Facebook, I think, has has outlived its utility for me personally, and I just keep it to keep in touch with people, post life updates. Well, yeah, Twitter is something like for you and I, I, I've tried to describe this before, and it's always kind of weird. It almost feels like a utility, like I'm not real into Facebook, but I just have it because you kind of need it. Like mm-hmm. in the same way you have like you get electricity, like I'm not excited about electricity, but I just kind of like get it, you know, because that's where the <laughs> certain things are. And Facebook is where just like certain things are keeping in touch with people who are a little bit more distant or not even like just keeping in touch, like still their lot seeing what their lives are. And like mm-hmm. there's some utility function to that. 
that you don't get like on Twitter or other places. Yeah, precisely. So that that's, I think, a good way to encapsulate my interactions with Facebook. But Twitter is something that I was really sucked into because it is kind of its own little universe, its own little Twitterverse. And you get a lot of news updates from Twitter and you get your friends and trusted official accounts you get their commentary on the events and it is kind of its own little loop and for a long time i would sort of obsessively scroll through twitter until i'd made sure that i had seen all the tweets that were possible to come across my feed i really felt in a very deep primal sense that i could not miss out on anything that was going on on the platform but what has happened is that, like I said, they're not on my phone, so I'm not checking them at work. And when I come home, I'm very tired and I don't really have the mental energy, at least right now while I'm adjusting my sleep schedule. I'm not having the mental energy to kind of follow an entire Matt Iglesias thread about mm-hmm. something that I already don't know that much about anyway. And so what I found as the week went on is that. I had less and less of an appetite to check Twitter at all. So I would check and I would scroll and I would see, you know, maybe 15 tweets and then I would hit a long one that was kind of boring and then I could exit out. That was maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday. But by Friday, Saturday, I would still kind of log on to Twitter out of habit, but then maybe look at two, three tweets and say, I I can't catch up with all of this and I I don't really (laughs) care to, I'm not that interested. And so it's been so strange to in real time feel this thing that used to be such a large part of my media consumption lose importance to me just because I was on it less. I've started, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it, a, a vicious or a virtuous cycle where the less that I'm on Twitter the less appealing Twitter feels to me. And maybe that that is social media, you know? You get into it, and the more that you become engrossed in that world, the more that you need to be constantly connected. But if you remove that constant connection, then you're, you're, you don't even crave it. Yeah. Now, I will say that it hasn't been perfectly neat and tidy because I still have that, like, uh, dopamine addiction to check my phone and so what I've been doing is as I let myself keep letterboxed the movie social media app and I check that all the time even though there's not that much activity <laughs> and so I just like see the same things over and over again and that's kind of how my again that need for that little dopamine hit is being manifested right now yeah it is interesting how like I don't I don't necessarily take like a completionist idea of Twitter. So like I can enjoy it and, but I don't have like that seeming need for, for all of it. I I think like people have experienced similar things where like some people get like addicted to their email if they get a bunch of email and some people get like obsessive about making it like so that it's always clean like they have no unread mail or everything's sorted and you know all that kind of stuff whereas i'm plenty fine letting email just kind of pile up <laughs> and and don't have the completionist thing so i could still 
you know, I, I don't become addicted to email in that kind of way. Yeah, that's a really good way to kind of frame this is because I definitely need to, if I see an email notification pop up on my phone or really a notification from any app, I want it cleared out. I got to address it and move on. I it, it gives me a bad feeling to have notifications piling up on my phone. So <laughs> good for you if you've avoided that. I, I let notifications fester. They just sit. <laughs> I, it's great. I love it. Just and you know what? I bet nothing bad happens because of it. <laughs> you bet your ass it doesn't. <laughs> but like, it's it's so weird. It's like I can't break that psychology of feeling like there is this looming thing hanging over me. Right. I don't know. I've always I've always been very nervous around deadlines. You know, I, I hate feeling like I'm not gonna turn something in on time or do something fast enough. And so I think that. The notification design for apps and especially social media or other communication-based apps kind of hijacks that part of my brain, right? Mm -hmm. And it really fucks with me. So, yeah, it definitely seems like that's my. Yeah, there's a subset of people where that's really like drives at their psychology, and you're just it's really motivating. Yeah. 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 And so that that's what I'm trying to do, I guess, is just extricate myself from the whole loop. And mm-hmm. this week it's been going well. Like I'm not swearing off Twitter. I'm not going on a crusade against social media. But, you know, is my life really that much better because I saw my friend's hot take on the Rick and Morty trailer? No. <laughs> you is know, there a Rick I and just... Morty trailer? Yeah, they they put one out for season five. They have a a release date now for season five. Ooh, interesting. I did not see that on Twitter. Yeah, maybe that should be the show. Yeah, that's the show. I I didn't see it on Twitter, but... And you know what? The thing, I didn't see it on Twitter. I saw it because I was reading the news. I was, like, looking through (laughs) Google News. That's another thing that I'm doing now is, is reading more news to fulfill that need to be looking at a screen. Um... And I'm reading my book. I, I'm, I'm, I'm charging through this book. I'm on page 262 of American Pastoral by Philip Roth. Whoo. Cruising. But, yeah, it, and it's interesting that you chose to have this conversation this week because this week there has been conversation about, like, what Twitter is as a platform because it, it holds a very interesting place where like it it's seemingly the place where a lot of like journalists and um researchers and you know people who are somewhat influential influential in you know the the i don't know it, i mean if some people call it the like there's something out in the world the body politique this is like the body cultural or you know like <laughs> conversational um, where it's like the cognoscenti. Yeah, this is where this is where the conversation happens. And because of that, it's very valuable. But that at the same time, it's it's easy for a lot of people to really dislike it because, you know, it's where also the mob is like the unfettered, like zero, like the world is flat mob is. <laughs> 
because mm-hmm. the platform is unbelievably flat and in, in the concept of like you know if you are a person who has nine million followers and you know gets tons of engagement you know your reply as a nobody to that tweet is on the same level as just some, anybody else who replies to that tweet mm-hmm. and part of it is like there was this really good comment made somebody had made a video and somebody commented on it it's just this it feels like this really captures this well is that twitter doesn't solve problems but it amplifies existing ones so it's like if you want to like amplify some message that something's going wrong in this world twitter's a great place for doing that but actually doing something about it it is not a great platform for that <laughs> like it, it's almost like a good like community board for everything in the world and if you're able to get like a little ounce of clout then you can really amplify messages but if you're actually like trying to do something or you know get away from the hordes or what have you it's not really a great platform <laughs> and see i wonder if that's not part of the design you know it's about keeping you know social media platforms and twitter is no exception are designed to keep users engaged on the platform as long as possible and if twitter users are going out into the world and solving problems that they hear about on twitter they're not on twitter and that is inimical to the goals of keeping people on twitter and so it's almost like if, if you're on Twitter a lot and you tweet a lot, you get a false sense of activity because mm-hmm. you can comment on things and make your opinions known. And believe me, as a guy who co-hosts a podcast, it feels fucking awesome to get your opinions out right. there and think that people are listening. But there's a limited utility to that. And I think that platforms like Twitter that give you that feeling of being heard in a way that costs almost nothing from you, just your time and a little bit of energy. You know, I don't want to say it's dangerous because the alternative is probably people just finding other low cost ways to meet their basic emotional needs. So I don't want to say it's dangerous, but I do think that it's something that I'm, I'm grappling with and feeling like I need less and less in my own life. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it's also just interesting how Twitter does it. Like the structure of it is so much different than everything. Well, like just not everything, but just other places. So like, like contrast, um, I'm going to do like Twitter and Reddit um, because this was something that was brought up in a Ezra Klein podcast earlier this week. But like Twitter, like Twitter has the, you know, the the extreme character limit compared to all the other social media. So there is a huge value on brevity. But then also like where your tweets go, they just go out into the ether, the general space, the the world, your followers. But then also it's kind of like 
just kind of freewheeling out into the universe where only... The way that the guy put it on the podcast is that it's everyone in the world together in a room with no walls. Yeah. It's just all out there and they're all yeah. together. Essentially. Whereas, like, and, and that, you know, creates its own set of incentives where people want to, you know, through being having the need to be concise, people have to be more to the point than they otherwise would be. Um, there's a greater um, push to be a little bit more definitive than you otherwise would be because, you know, expressing hesitation takes characters and characters <laughs> are in short supply. Whereas Reddit is just like, you know, it's a place where people get like radicalized and, you know, people will say it's bad and other things, but there's a lot of communities on Reddit. Well, that, that, that's one of the things is that like when you post something on Reddit, it's not just to the ether of just the big pile that is Reddit. You go to a specific subreddit, which is a community of things. And, you know, there aren't the, these character limits, but, but then also within each subreddit, each subreddit has its own moderating guidelines mm -hmm. where there are actual moderators who look over this stuff most of the time. And so what happens is, is that you have, you go to a place to have a specific discussion. And then even within that specific space for the discussion, there are general rules about how to go and have that discussion. And then there is some third party you know, the moderators who is entrusted to decide what is and is not part of that conversation based on that own community's rules. So they can, you know, uh, they can, you know, delete comments and stuff and people, you know, get uproar like this, but it's not like just some nameless Twitter banning or removal or anything where that, where it's like kind of hazy rules versus the subreddit where, you know, there's, you know, oftentimes clean defined rules and then it's a member of the community and it's a community that you chose to engage with, not just a big heap. And then also, like, there are more tools like, you know, if there's some thread where the conversation gets too feisty, they can just shut down the whole thread. Whereas on Twitter, you know, when people start getting going on things like you just can't go and be like if they had wanted to be like, all right, we're shutting down all the discussion of George Floyd. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like there was no readily available tool to do that. Um, you know, they have complex algorithms that they choose to use selectively for certain things. Like, you know, they're great at weeding out jihadist content, but then once they start using that for other forms of bad content, other people get caught up in the net. And But, but yeah, so just kind of the nature of Twitter being this like completely flat space and everybody being in the same room and everyone trying to be brief is just kind of a recipe for some issues sometimes. And here's another point that I want to make that's related to this Twitter Reddit divide is that on Twitter, if you want to disagree with someone, the only thing you can do is compose another tweet to call them out or attack them or what have you. On Reddit, obviously you can do that, but there is a less fiery option, a downvote. If you disagree with something, 
and you want to make that heard, you don't necessarily have to stir up more vitriol. All you have to do is click the little button and downvote it. And so yeah. I wonder if that doesn't help lower the temperature as well, because not everyone who disagrees feels like they have to shout. They can just, in a very simple and non-confrontational way, say, I disagree. And communities can police themselves in that informal way, where even if a comment isn't removed, if it really gets enough downvotes, it'll be obvious yeah. that that's not endorsed yeah. by the community. I mean, yeah, and it ends up like being quasi-removed. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that is an interesting point because, like, so you like, if you're using the Reddit model, there there are a lot of opinions out there that are controversial. And let's say you know this opinion is so controversial, it receives 800 upvotes because a lot of people agree with it, but then also receives a thousand downvotes, and because a lot of people disagree and on Reddit, that comment would go away or because of, you know, the, the votes aren't exactly one-to-one. -one, there's like a mm -hmm. kind of logarithm scale to it. You know, it would at least be downvoted. It would not be in the positive. Whereas, you know, if you had the same comment on Twitter, you know, the, it would be more likely that the thing just has 800 likes and maybe it has a, a lot of comments on it. You know, maybe it's been ratioed, but it is still but gets it still to exist in good interaction standing. total. Yeah, because yeah. that's the the currency of Twitter is interactions, whereas Reddit, it's net upvotes. Yeah. So it's just uh, yeah, it, it since and I and I get why social media platforms don't want to. Um, have the dislike button mm -hmm. but but i think it would probably be useful it like you don't have to do it as a net total like they do on like uh on reddit where it's the idea of this is you know when things get upvotes this is the net total of upvotes that we have gotten on this whereas you know if you just display, I mean, I think Instagram has also gotten away from publicly displaying likes, which I think is a good thing. Hmm. Um, if they truly have, because like, who needs to see that? Like, if you like something like it, don't, mm -hmm. you know, and it just kind of fuels this. So like, well, actually, that's that's huge. I want to hold on that for a moment, because that has been theorized as to why we're seeing so much mental health strife, especially among younger generations, is that humans are comparative species, right? We don't really have a good barometer for how much of anything is enough. So we have to compare to other people. So if, say, I get six likes on a post, but I see that my friend got 60 likes, I feel shitty. And if I get 60 likes, but I see that my friend has 600 likes, I feel shitty about that too. There's no objective amount of likes that is enough to fulfill a human. But as soon as we know that we're getting less than someone else, we feel bad. So I, I agree that if, I, I don't know anything about Instagram because I'm not on Instagram, mm -hmm. but if, if you can remove that comparative aspect from it, I think that that could be really beneficial just on a human level. Right. Um, yeah, like, so what if it was like Twitter or Facebook 
and they didn't show the amount of likes you got, but you could also dislike it. So if it ends up, you know, something was like in the negatives for dislikes, then it just disappears. Um, and, but if it stays in the positive or zero or in the very little dislike zone, then it gets to stay. But nobody knows exactly to what degree that it stays, you know, on. So mm-hmm. it would just be, that would be an interesting way to deal with it because I think one of the reasons why social media platforms don't want to have the dislike is because they see it as a little too brutal, you know, like, um, and especially if people were able to publicly see how much something was disliked. Because remember, again, it comes back to wanting to keep users on the platform as much as possible. And if you introduce a negative feedback consequence for bad content, people who post bad content will be discouraged from using the website or the app, and they don't want anyone to not use it, even if you're churning out bad or destructive content. That's the business model. Keep everyone on as long as possible. So yeah, it makes sense why a lot of places don't want even the option for negative feedback. Yeah. But that's not great for discourse. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. <laughs> and then, you know, there would probably be, be pro- I mean, this is something that happens on Reddit a lot that tries to get policed, which is called brigading. So like a uh, let's say there's one subreddit that really doesn't like another subreddit. So the subreddit A that doesn't dislike dislike subreddit B will go on to subreddit B's, you know, subreddit and just like downvote things or make lots of bad comments and stuff and you know that's part of part of it and they really try to police you know if they ever find out that a subreddit is brigading another one then that's like uh that's like a two strikes and you're out kind of deal mm. um as far as you know the the big reddit moderation but you know there would that would just be a thing that would also be in other social medias i guess but but yeah, it's just these conversations, they they only have an they're only able to have an upward trajectory as far as engagement and spread. And I that's that's not the same as the marketplace of ideas, the marketplace of ideas. Definitely. Well, at least, you know what? You know, the way I think of it is that there should also definitely be a way for bad ideas to get not less traction. Yeah, that exactly. That is the marketplace of ideas. You can take any idea out, but it has to gain support to stick. And right now we're in a climate where, remember, that these social media platforms are in the discourse business, but they don't have any reason to favor good discourse. They want to favor volume of discourse because that's how they draw users and they can monetize that way. And so, yeah, they're not in any way creating a productive marketplace of ideas. They're creating just a an, an infinitely tall soapbox, if you will, or, or I'm thinking like, it's kind of like, you know, if it's a marketplace of ideas, then this market is going through its dot-com boom right now where, 
it's all basic, considered valuable. Yeah, it's it's all just considered valuable. There is no way to pump the brakes on it currently. So let's so. let's extend this analogy, Joe. How is this bubble going to burst? Um, pets.com. <laughs> pets.com is going to come back and it's going to be the dominant social media. There you go. What what is pets.com? Um it was a it was like the dot com booms darling. Like it was a website that was pet supplies and it just soaked up like investor dollars and was very popular, um, but turned out was not profitable. <laughs> and at one point they even had like a Super Bowl commercial and they had this little mascot that was like a sock puppet and it was pretty popular. You know, it was in the cultural zeitgeist at the time. But again, it, it they were like the example of, you know, we pumped a bunch of money into this because we thought it was going to you know be valuable, but just never really turned a profit. Uh, yeah. Got to turn a profit if you're a business or at least promise to it. Adequately convince investors that you will at some day in the future. Or at very least, be a part of a business that is turning a profit that can soak up your losses. Well, yeah. Yeah. Which Pets.com was not. Rip. Rip. Rip Pets.com. So anyway, they're going to they're gonna come and solve the social media crisis. Well, as long as that little dog can help us out, I'll be here for it. Yeah. 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 So did you have any more thoughts on uh, the social medias? No, I think that this has uh, been a pretty interesting discussion. I mostly just wanted to convey my own experience of sort of going down this positive rabbit hole where removing myself from constant social media space has reduced my psychological drive to embed myself deeper within them. So if you guys got that, I'm happy and I'm ready to ask Joe a question. All right, what are you going to ask him? What do you want to talk about? Oh, what do I want to talk about? I want to talk about this uh, discourse that's been happening around um, unemployment and kind of like specifically restaurants. So recently there's been this level of discourse where um, uh, restaurant owners have had a hard time finding employees to come and work at their restaurants. And... Uh, a lot of times it's been kind of framed as, oh, these lazy people who would otherwise be working here are just living at home, sucking up unemployment and don't want to come and work. The government is putting us out of business because we're in a stage where people are able to go to restaurants now and that's something people very much like so they're starting to but the restaurant industry is still having a hard time finding employees um which is actually not something traditional to um the restaurant industry in the united states because for i don't know the however long it's been the restaurant industry decided had enjoyed a large amount of slack in their labor market 
where there was a whole lot of people who wanted to work in restaurants, but not as many jobs. Now it's in a weird place and it's there are more jobs than people wanting to work. And why is that? Why is that? Why are we having this, you know, specific thing right now? And I will admit from the outset, part of it probably has to do somewhat with unemployment benefits. But like really most like unemployed uh, restaurant workers would have become unemployed last year. And like their unemployment benefits would have run out by now. Um, I don't know if the extensions have extended through the entire um, pandemic, but you know, they were unemployed a long time ago, but also just that, like I have, uh, I have a friend who manages a restaurant and, you know, I talked with him and he told me basically, yeah, like most of the people who worked here got other jobs <laughs> and they got, they got, you know, they like work at warehouses now and they have greater stability or they're still just waiting for it to all like completely blow over because reminder even though things are getting better we are still in a pandemic um it has not gone away and while the risks associated with it have gone down working in a restaurant is still the most dangerous kind of job there is because restaurants are a place where people unwind and also are given the freedom to not wear their masks indoor. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And this means that on a net, it's the more dangerous job. So, you know, people like to make a lot of hay about the wages, which is also part of it. But it's like, it's just also <laughs> still currently a dangerous job. And I think there's a disconnect because a lot of the people who are going back to these restaurants are like people who um, are a more likely to have not been as affected by the, the coronavirus, like people who have been able to keep their decent paying jobs and probably work in jobs that were less dangerous to the coronavirus in general. So they're like, well, come on, things are basically done now. And then then the then the restaurant workers are like, fuck no, it's still dangerous. But but it's just it it's interesting because like it seems like in the the Biden administration there is a real push within his economic advisors and through economic policy to push for full employment. And like <laughs> This is restaurant workers having to deal with that for like the first time in our lifetimes <laughs> is, you know, just having to deal with having to actually like try and get people to come and work for them. You know, that's something that, you know, in the industry I work in, trucking has been been here for a good while. It wasn't always the case, like in the way back days, you know, that there was still the case where there were more truck driving jobs or more truck drivers than truck driving jobs. But now it's definitely the case where there are more jobs than there are drivers. And so it's just interesting to see an industry, the restaurant industry, which has 
often been um, less amenable to workers actually have to like work to try and retain them or attract them. And yeah, it's just been something interesting that's been happening. Yeah, it is interesting. So put on your prognosticator hat. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think that the restaurant industry is going to cave and start offering higher wages? Do you think that there's just going to be some friction until the expanded unemployment insurance runs out? What? Uh, where do you see this going? Well, I imagine there's going to be, I think there's going to be some friction until like, the virus fully calms down or like gets reaches some sort of critical level. Um, because at this point there's still a lot of unvaccinated people. And I saw something where, um, looking at the numbers and like how things have gone in Israel and the UK, it's looking like, you know, if we were able to get, from where we are right now, 10 to 15% more of the population uh, vaccinated, that could equal like a five to 15 times magnitude reduction in the deadliness of the virus. Wow. Um, you know, bringing it to an almost zero levels. Um, but, you know, that's still a ways to go. And, you know, we have our issues with that. But, but, but we're on track to do that. But, but, um, it would be interesting if this trend were to go on for long enough because like um it seems to be that workers really earn like when an industry gets workers rightsified i guess you could say um like where unionization or better work standards and all that kind of stuff that happens when there are tight labor markets for that type of labor you know um like when most of the unions were started or most of the strikes that happened in this country happened like during world war ii when the demand for people's labor was the greatest um, so the workers had the maximum amount of power. So yeah, if there's not a lot of people looking for jobs ready to take over and scab when you go on strike, then your strike can be more effective. Right. So I just can't help but wonder if this could be the beginning of something like that, but for restaurant workers, because traditionally restaurant workers have not been able to be part of these labor unions a lot. Or, you know, these workers' rights pieces because there, it, it always has been that there's been, like, way more people who are willing to come and work in the industry than there were jobs for it. So what could end up happening is that there could be a greater push for, um, like, it, and it's even kind of being seen now. So wages have been coming up for restaurant workers. Um and then also, like, it, I think it may just be that there may be a good amount of restaurants that end up closing because they either can't find the workers or they can't, like, pay enough for the workers. Because restaurants are historically a very low profit margin uh, industry. 
like if a if a uh a uh, restaurant has a profit margin of like 10%. That's like they're doing phenomenal. And that means for every dollar they make, they end up, you know, actually having a profit of 10 cents. And that's like them doing good. Um, whereas a lot of restaurants have much thinner profit margins. So it means that on the grand scale of economics, they aren't the most productive uses of capital or efficient uses of capital. But it's definitely something people want. So what would happen is that I think there would end up being a good number of our restaurants that close and the the le- less productive ones, the ones that you know, provide lesser value and then there is like ends up being some sort of consolidation towards restaurants that are better and you're able to retain their employees and have a little bit better margin. So but so that's just some spitballing. That would, that would shrink the supply of restaurant jobs available and get us back closer to that homeostasis or... Could, well, but here's the thing is that like generally wages are what they call sticky. So once mm-hmm. a raise for something happens, it's really hard to go back on that. And even like at an industry level. So like, you know, um, you know, if this is why companies are way more reluctant to give raises than to do other sorts of things, because once you give a raise, you've basically given a raise for forever. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of times that's something, you know, people who run companies don't exactly want to commit to at any one moment. So that's why they'll offer other things like maybe a bonus or um, like a sign on bonus or, you know, less tangible things like, or fungible things like a pizza party or, you know, Mm -hmm. something like that, because that's just a one time payout and they can account for that today. Whereas um, a pay raise is something that they really have to account for, for forever. Um, which is, you know, they don't exactly want to commit to that. So what ends up happening is that it could be that, you know, they they win these kind of more rights, some restaurants close, and then they get to retain those rights because, um, you know, it, that just becomes expected what you get in a restaurant job versus, you know, what the expectation was before the pandemic. But but then again, who knows? Maybe this is all just a blip in everything and, you know, things will just kind of go back to normal. But, you know, there are some there are some restaurant tours out there who are doing some loud complaining. (laughs) (laughs) And I I swear most of the I, I read a couple articles on it and. You know, a lot of restaurant tours got talked to, but not a whole lot of restaurant employees. Uh. Yeah. But it's just also like, you know, people want to say that people are, you know, like just living on the dole on this, which I mean, at some theoretical level, it's like it's still the pandemic. Like we don't we're still don't want everybody fully out there. But then also like it's been a long time, like 
most people have found other things to do if they're not doing that. Yeah, yeah, we've had the time to adjust our lives to this in a way that doesn't require us working in a restaurant. At least most yeah. people, you know. And some or people, some since people they, I'll say some people. And some people, since they had to find something else, I mean, I, I'm imagining a number of them have chose not to go and be, you know, they found something that works better for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, through some experimentation that they otherwise wouldn't have done before the pandemic. Um, so that's one thing. But then there's also like, there is also the very strong theory that this may just go back to like, it just takes a little bit of time. The way I I'm thinking about it is like, so when a freight train starts up, it with a freight train when it's starting up, it's not pulling every single one of its cars at the same time. There was, there is no locomotive out there that could do that, pull the whole length of a train at one time. But what ends up happening is the the train starts moving, it pulls the first car, then then you know the slack is let out between the second first and second car so then it's pulling the second car then it's pulling the third car then you know on and on and on throughout the train so we're just at a point where this economy reopening where we're pulling a good part of the train but there's still a good portion of it that's still in the slack and is Mm -hmm. still waiting to be pulled up so I guess that was my next question is, are we seeing these same types of labor market dynamics in similar, maybe service customer facing industries like retail? From my understanding, I, th- I think that's it. I think restaurants are a, I, I think it's been more talked about in restaurants because the, the restaurant model is still relatively like there haven't been as many technological and productivity gains as there are in say the retail retail space um because just kind of the experience of going to a restaurant is capital intensive like you know if you're going to a a decent restaurant you're not gonna want to like order on an ipad and (laughs) um you know have it brought out to your car or whatever shit you know has has happened in the more traditional retail space um, because that's not what you come to do. Whereas I, I believe the more traditional retail spaces have been able to do some innovations in it that have allowed them to um, need less labor. And also just like a big cutting down on hours across a lot of industries. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I mean, still most restaurants here in Galesburg aren't open the same late night hours that they used to be. Almost no stores are 24 hours, which a good number of them used to be. So I don't know. And and who knows if they're going to go back to that after this. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that, that hits close to home. My brother works at Joanne's and he has been finding hours really hard to come by over there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, yeah. And I just don't know if the, like, since a lot of us changed our consumption to be less contact orientated, that there, there, you know, it could also just be that there is not as much demand for the retail side of things because there, 
yeah, they're just figuring they've figured out that they don't have to do that. Or consumers mm-hmm. have figured out that they don't have to do that. Like, I I actually really don't ever go to the store for things other than groceries. Like, I pretty much anything else I need, I like order on Amazon. <laughs> and have it shipped to that's, my door. That's what they want. Yep. And it's great for me. <laughs> <laughs> so so my my market need or you know what my consumption does doesn't generate any demand for like retail employees and i just imagine that there's still a good number of people out in this world who are like that but then also the retail space is a little bit different because you know because of greater trends that we've seen in the economy there are less firms involved so mm-hmm. like restaurant industry is still one where there's a lot of different firms, you know, or, you know, individual businesses, um, you know, any town has their own local restaurants and then there are national restaurants and you still need a lot of people to go and do that. Whereas, you know, I'm thinking to our town Galesburg here, you know, there's like Walmart, there's Target, but there isn't a whole bunch of small retail shops. And even those ones, I mean, even before the pandemic, it was mostly just kind of like the owner and maybe a couple other people. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there isn't this big demand a bunch across a bunch of different places. There's just the few who are able to make it work. So it's an interesting time for labor in, in the United States. And the recovery. So I wonder, I wonder if there is a way forward for, certain types of shops to adopt that more like nice restaurant model like like if there's a way that they can make retail shopping more of an experience that still requires a physical location like i'm just kind of thinking out loud here i don't think it would work for every industry but people still really like going to a bookstore you know and flipping through books and maybe talking to a salesman who knows about the books so i'm wondering if there's uh, there's a way to to steer into that more there are some uh, there are some clothing outlets that still do that. Um, I'm a big man, so I shop at a big and tall stores, and almost every single one I have, you know, I'll be greeted by like a clerk or something, and asked if I need any help, and oftentimes I do because I'm actually going for something specific, and and that's always a good experience, and it costs more than I mean going to like J.C. Penney's or something like that. Which mm-hmm. hardly exists as a company anymore, it turns out. I think they filed for one of the forms of bankruptcy last year. Yeah, yeah, I think I heard that. But I still buy clothes from them. So, yeah, who knows? But it's a, it's an interesting time for for labor in the United States. And I don't think it's just exclusively the Superdole. <laughs> Mm-hmm. which which has it's been a while one since even the the $600 incantation even existed but we still have extended UI benefits um but um they will be coming to a close suit and that will be like an interesting you know kind of natural economics experiment see what happens in September when those expire because I I'm going to guess that things are going to be well enough that there isn't going to be another reauthorization of the extended universe, you know, unemployment ba- benefits. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. 
We'll see how Jeez, this... I sure, uh, ho- I sure hope so by September, but you never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because, you know, yeah, things are tracking good in the United States as far as COVID numbers are coming. Mm-hmm. Also, I have this tidbit, not really related, but just like tangentially related. I am a big fan of restaurant shows. You know, I, I Bourdain is one of my heroes. I like, you know, TV shows about restaurants. I am not looking forward to how every single show is now going to have a bit where they talk about how they went through COVID. <laughs> Diners, drive-ins, and delivery apps? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's almost like I remember... I mean, this is going to be a little bit insensitive of me, but... Oh, no. I, I remember after 9-11 happened that, oh, that's like... Fine. Yeah. <laughs> After 9-11 happened, every time they did a story of like some group or business or restaurant in New York, there was like a bit about like what they did at 9-11, which I guess for the time being was, you know, made sense. And, you know, that was like, I mean, talk about the zeitgeist. That was the zeitgeist. 9-11 that big, big important turning point that a lot of people were uh, interested in or, you know, thought about. So, mm-hmm. you know, every, every time you talked about a restaurant or something happening in New York, they would be like, and, and, and on nine 11 and, or, you know, after nine 11, you know, we were a restaurant for the firefighter or, you know, what have you. Um, so we have this, uh, local wing bar, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. How did you guys respond to 9-11? <laughs> well, we didn't exist yet. Um, <laughs> it'd be another 10 years until wings and things became a thing in Tuscaloosa. Um, so, yeah, weird line of questioning, sir. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was still a terrible tragedy. National Day of Mourning, um, you know. Honor our first responders. Uh, that's why you can have our first responder package. 20 wings and a pint of beer for $14. Oh, man. Just a pint for 20 wings? Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So, but... I'm still developing it, Joe, okay? I, yeah, I haven't yeah. even opened this restaurant yet. I have to move to Alabama. There's a whole bunch of fucking paperwork. <laughs> the paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> forget about anything else (laughs) i'm gonna have to change my driver's license again it's gonna be a headache oh god i need to update my i still haven't gotten my illinois plates i'm bad oh joe so long the hours are just not good at the dmv that's true it's their Um, fault yeah yeah so that's uh I think, yeah, unless you have anything else to say, Evan, on the subject or any other subject. I mean, we could keep pitching this restaurant idea, but other than that. I think I'm I'm satiated (laughs) with the amount of restaurant pitching we've done on this bit. All right. (laughs) Unless you really want to go on with it, I can do a little bit more. No, no, I got it. Okay. All right. Well, I think that about does it for this episode. Uh, We thank you all for listening. Um, I guess I'll ask again, Evan, any last words? Um, always tip your waitresses. Yeah. Don't be an ass. You know, 
I mean, I re- tipping shouldn't ob- exist objectively. They should just get paid. But absent that, you got to leave a tip. Yeah. I, I I remember there was a video a little while ago that came out on Business Insiders. And it was like, here's a tip to save money on eating at restaurants. And it, I mean, it basically sum up to, hey, did you know you can tip your wait staff less? <laughs> It was like, oh, tip them on the pre-tax total versus the post-tax total. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. like, yeah, 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 that was always an option. You could just tip them less. Crazy. <laughs> but that's, anyway. That's why we pay for the business insider subscription. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the adequately informed business, business insiders. Um, anyway, 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 anyway. Um, we like to thank you listening. Like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. But anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And anyway, my name is Evan Kelly. And anyway, we hope that you've been adequately informed. <laughs>